Would you pray with me? God, we would refuse you nothing. The stresses, the circumstances, the choices we make, the choices others make just beat us down in the course of a week. And we come here knowing that we've taken back territory in our own lives that belongs wholly and solely to you. Open our hands, open our hearts. May you increase and we decrease. May you grow greater and greater and we grow less and less. That all the world may know that Jesus Christ is Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen. Singing those words in here is a lot harder than living those words out there. Living a devoted Christian life in an increasingly unchristian world is not easy. Sometimes I think I was more courageous as a believer at age 16 than I am at 61. There are so many times that I go home and I lay my head on a pillow and say, I failed you, God. I blew it today. I had opportunity to speak boldly to somebody and I just cowered. Now, there have been times in my life that I think I was more obnoxious than I was courageous. But in those times, I lay my head on the pillow and say, I blew it again because I did more damage to the testimony of your church than I did good. Living a devoted Christian life in an increasingly unchristian world is difficult. Every day when we wake from the evening and we peek out from under the covers, What we stare into when we leave the doors of our house is a kind of cultural or spiritual no man's land. Now, no man's land as we know it, as we show the picture of it, is most identified with that unoccupied, treacherous space that existed between the entrenched troops of World War I. In today's world, the spiritual battles for the souls of men are likewise fault in a no man's land. And that no man's land is known as contemporary or modern culture. And it doesn't really matter whether it's 2019 or whether it was the time of Corinth, wherever you find yourself, the culture within which you find yourself, that's where God does battle for the souls of men. And he's called us out of service to self into devotion and service to him and then back into that world to reach that world. Becoming a Christian is not a get out of hell Uh, free card. It is an invitation to join God in the redemptive mission he has in the world until he promotes us to heaven. But that's what we got to live in. In World War I, that space was cluttered and littered with landmines and with obstacles and with barriers, and it's no less the case today. The cultural landscape that you find ourselves in where we have to make moral decisions, where we don't find clear directives in scriptures that require conscience and common sense and love and certain principles that the scriptures teach. I mean, there are everyday dilemmas and decisions and details from a moral standpoint. And there's friendly fire 
and there's enemy fire. We live in a perpetual tension between our Christian faith and our Christian culture, in our contemporary culture. It's always been that way. It was for Jesus. It was for Paul. It was in Corinth. It was in Rome. It is in Atlanta, Georgia as well. How do we live fully devoted lives for Christ? Full of conviction, not compromise, in a world of blurred lines. How do we follow him faithfully in a me-first, my-truth, multicultural world city? How are, are we to be in the world but not of the world? How do we make sure that we're in our culture but the culture doesn't get inside us? That's our daily dilemma and a divine opportunity for believers in every age. And that specifically is what Paul addresses at the last part of the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It's actually the capsulizing of an entire portion that he's been dealing with in chapters 8 through 10. If you check out right now, I just want you to remember four words, because this kind of is where the whole sermon is eventually going. And that is what Paul begins the 14th verse with, and what he ends at the first verse of the 11th chapter, flee idolatry and follow Christ. If you don't hear anything else, you got the message. Flee idolatry and follow Christ. Let's do a quick rapid review of where you've been uh, so far. Where was Corinth? Corinth is a Greek city. It's a Greek city on an isthmus. There's all to be some kind of jokes about isthmus. I was afraid I was going to get into that. Merry isthmus to you. That's probably what they said when we're in Corinth. But no, it was an isthmus between, I can't believe I said that. I'm not going to be able to think anything else. Now, it was on a portion of land that connected mainland Greece with the Peloponnesian. Well, I was able to pronounce Peloponnesian. I'm proud of that. Peninsula. It was a cultural and a commercial center. It had seaports on both sides and two different bodies of water. It was an over-sexualized, secular, multicultural city. Sound familiar? In fact, one source that I read said it was a renowned and voluptuous city where the vices of East and West met. It had a legalized and legitimized sex trade at the Temple of Aphrodite with a thousand prostitutes. We also know it kind of had its own architecture as well, Corinthian columns and all that. They kind of went away from the Doric and the Dorkic and the Doric and the Ionic, and they created a better kind of column called the Corinthian column. Paul had spent 18 months there laboring. Uh, as a tent maker with fellow laborers uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Um, um, uh, You can read about that in Acts 18 uh, during his second missionary journey. It didn't end well as he was called in front of Gallio, but that kind of worked out. At one point he swore that he would never preach in synagogues again, but he, he, he recanted on that to some degree. Three years later when he's in Ephesus, he receives word from various messengers that there are problems in Corinth. And the main problem in Corinth is that the Christians in the midst of that culture, that the Christians in the midst of Corinth were not just living in Corinth, Corinth was now living in them. Now we know that he wrote several letters, but only two of which are included in our canon. The first of which, of course, is 1 Corinthians. It's interesting when you read through the book of Acts and you read the rest of the letters of the New Testament, Over and over again, the church was having to be restored 
to purity and unity within the church. So much of what the content, so much of the ink in the New Testament is devoted on restoring and maintaining the purity and the unity of the church. It was no different in Corinth. In the first four chapters, he deals with divisions. Back then, churches didn't meet in large auditoriums like this. They had to meet wherever they could meet, so they met in little small spaces, and they all had their own individual leaders, almost like small groups. And the trouble was that they began to fall more in love with their leader than they did with the Lord. And so there were these petty little divisions that arose. That's no different today. We tend to brag more on our quarterback than we do kind of on why we're here for the first place. He had to deal with sexual impurity and immorality within the church, and he gave uh, additional teaching on church discipline and on resolving internal disputes within the church, within the Christian community, and on marriage. And then he gets to the eighth chapter of 1 Corinthians, where for two chap- three chapters, he deals with this cultural engagement that the church has got to be in the midst of, on how to navigate the cultural pressures and practices of the day with a, with a conscience and with common sense. To use the law of love, a love for God and for our fellow man, believer and unbeliever alike, as the guiding principle to avoid the careless license on one side and harmful legalism on the other. Zach did a far better job handling this three weeks ago than I could possibly uh, do, so I encourage you, if you haven't heard it, to go back and listen to his message. To understand that Christian liberty is not the freedom to do what we want, but the freedom to do what we ought That in the absence of clear biblical directives, certain inviolate Christian principles and common sense apply. He gives the principles in chapter 8. He illustrates them in chapters 9 and 10. In 9, he uses himself as a good example of what a mature believer does and how they respond in such situations. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, he gives a bad example of how an immature person deals with it, which is the history of Israel in a bad way. And then he gets to this portion of Scripture that we deal with today. Flee idolatry and follow Christ. Flee idolatry and follow Christ. The issue that he was addressing was the fact that they were eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. How many of you have eaten meat that's been sacrificed to idols. I didn't think anybody would raise their hand. So this is where you think, well, I can kind of check out. I almost started the message by saying, are there any idolaters in the house? Please stand up and whoop, 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 whoop. No, we don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. But every day, in so many ways, we eat at the world's table. And we consume what our culture esteems as important without thinking how it might affect our witness in the believing and unbelieving world. Remember that the church then and now is a minority group living in an idol-laden culture. And our temptation is always to do what everybody else is doing. To accommodating to whatever the culture is doing at the time, whatever their norms or practices are, that's a constant battle that we face. Paul says when you go to church on Sunday and you receive the Lord's Supper, you are identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then when you walk out that door and then you start to pursue and to protect with prominence and passion everything that the world says is important, that they think will bring them that they, that they think that will bring them what they're ultimately seeking, then you are now showing yourself to be one of them. 
and you can't have your feet in both worlds. He said it's not right. Flee idolatry and follow Christ. I love getting to talk about this subject because I think idolatry is the least talked about, most common and most damaging sin of the people of God in every generation. We think of it as an Old Testament sin. It's an everyday challenge for me to not give in to the temptation of idolatry. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5 said, you'll have no other gods beside me. That's kind of the old King James. I always like it that way. Most other versions will uh, translate it. You'll have no other gods before me, but I like beside me. Whatever or whoever you believe can bring you the joy, the peace, the love, the hope that you seek, that is your God. If anything or anyone gets to a point of prominence and passion in your life that it dilutes, that it distracts, that it divides your devotion from Jesus Christ, that becomes an idolatry. Anything that we love, anybody that we love as much as or more than God, anything that we elevate to those types of things becomes an idol. It can be a person, it can be a career, it can be a job, it can be a possession, it can be a habit, and it's easy to track. There was a commercial, a mass mutual commercial some years ago that says, who matters most to you says the most about you. There was a Greek philosopher that used to have his students draw in the sand a very large triangle. And then he'd tell them to place on the, on the bottom of that, on the base of that triangle, everything that was important to you, right? Everything that's important to you on the base of that, of that triangle. When they were finished with that exercise, he'd have them erase it, draw a smaller triangle, and repeat the exercise. He'd have them repeat that over and over and over again until the triangle got so small that there was room for only one thing at the bottom. And then he would ask them this question. What one thing will you hold on to when everything else has to be sacrificed? Now for him, that was a Values clarification. But for us, I would say that's your God. The gods of culture have never changed. Fame, fortune, pleasure, power, prestige, position, they're always the same. I find that modern, modern idolatry shows itself a little differently, particularly in the believing world. It never really unseats God. Instead, it simply elevates other people, things, possessions, or activities alongside him to dilute the devotion we ought to have exclusively to God. We don't live focused lives as a result. You can always tell what a person values by looking at their checkbook, at their calendar, or at their recent contact list in their telephone. Where you invest your time, your money, and your emotion tells everything about what matters to you. In the year 2000, I had gotten to a point as a basketball player that I wasn't very good anymore. Uh, my skills had eroded quite a bit. And I was at a time when I was between jobs, and I talked to a gentleman that was a sports official, and he said, you ought to get into basketball officiating. You'll make a little money. It's a lot of fun. You'll be part of a sport that you love. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, that might be kind of fun. And more than that, I thought it might be useful. 
To know much about me, you've got to know that I identify with what Paul said in Romans 15. My ambition has never been to preach Christ where he's known, so I will not be building on the foundation of other people. I want to preach Christ where he's not known. I like to be around people that are far from God. A big pivot point in my Christian ministry is when I moved away from traditional ministry so that I could be out in the marketplace in the collision of life where I could sow seeds of the gospel of light and love in places where people were far from God. I saw the opportunity to get involved in sports officiating as not only a necessity to help me earn some cash, but I saw it as a possible ministry to be around men and women that were far from God. That's a noble task. But then it devolved to an obsession. 16 games on my schedule for the first season, refereeing uh, seventh grade C girls basketball. Well, I cared more about whether their bows were on right or if they had the right little, little thing over here. And it was hard. I tell you, it's sometimes easier to referee a, uh, an NCAA basketball game, but men's basketball game than seventh grade B girls. So much of an obsession, obsession, it took so much time, so much of my identity was rooted in being a sports official and climbing the ladder. So much of my ego was involved in that, so much of my time and money. I was now making decisions to set aside ministry so that I could be on the court that I realized one day it's become an idolatry. It was distracting me from being all that God had asked me to be and all that God had asked me to do. My experience and my observation, not only in the lives of others, but even in my own lives of the form that idolatry takes, is that an unfocused life initially entices and then it entraps. And finally, it innervates. The Bible is clear that to be friends with the world, to have a worldly mindset, to let idolatry, to let other things be elevated to the same level of importance and passion and pursuit as God is not best. James, the brother of our Lord, said it this way, friendship with the world is enmity with God. John said in his first epistle, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Paul here is exhorting us to stop living deluded lives, adoring and investing in what the world cares about. He wants us to live fully devoted lives. Paul urges us to be aware and to take thought of what our devotion to culture's idols is saying to the world that we do not fully trust in God alone for our safety and our security and for our salvation. Now, historically, Christians and the church have responded to culture in very predictable ways. One of the ways that we see that we oftentimes respond to the way things are out there in culture is by simple rejection. Rejection. 
Sometimes that takes the form of isolation. Sometimes that takes the form of criticism. Sometimes we check out entirely or we become combative and antagonistic. Think for a second of monasticism in the early church or Christian sects throughout all of Christian history. Times, conversely, when we become angry or accusing or judgmental or aloof with a holier-than-thou attitude about how bad the world is, we become so heavenly-minded that in rejection of culture, we become no earthly good. On the screen, you'll see a depiction of this in the form of a seesaw. We are called by God to radically identify with our culture while at the same time maintaining a radical difference from our culture. When we reject our culture, we maintain a radical difference, but at the expense of identifying in a relevant way with our culture. So rather than withdraw or disassociation or disdain for our culture, we're to engage it in different ways. Sometimes our rejection takes the form of reducing our impact to disingenuous service projects, spiritual safaris where we let down the drawbridge from the castle of our Christian enclaves, and then we transactionally, not transformationally, go out into culture. And we actually do more damage in these types of situations often than we do good. In truth, these make us feel good and soothe our guilt, but they rarely help anybody for the long term. It's like giving a homeless person a candy bar or a dollar bill. John Stott called such Christians who reject culture rabbit hole Christians. A radical difference, but no radical or relevant identification with culture. We maintain our message, but we lose altogether our our audience. Yes, the message is intact, it's undiluted, but we've lost the connection to the culture that we are supposed to communicate the gospel in. Rejection is a very common way that we respond to culture. A second way that Christians in the church have often responded to culture is by overcorrecting the other direction and going from rejection to immersion by overaccommodating to culture. It's a complete rejection of rejectionism and is often an overcorrection to the previous stance. Sensing that need to radically identify with people out there in the world, we fail to maintain a radical difference from the world that we're called to reach. We become so essentially indistinguishable from the world that there's nothing to commend them embracing our faith. In our attempt to identify with culture, we actually become identical to it. There's no divine difference. There's no divine distinctiveness to clarify what we're all about. And so we get squeezed into the world's mold, as Paul talked about in the 12th chapter of Romans, the second verse. On your screens, you see a depiction of this. Now the seesaw is tilted towards the other side to that radical identification at the expense of a radical difference. Our culture views this as complicity, that we've just become one of them, and they see this as acceptance or even agreement with the worldview that they embrace, immersion. Another way that we do this is we vacillate between the two, rejection and immersion. And so what it comes to be is something that we would call split adaptation, or maybe a better 
phrase for it is just simply cultural compromise. We live two very distinct and different lives. We're chameleon Christians fitting into whatever the environment or the individual we're with at the moment wants us to be. So on Sundays or at small group, we're all one way. We're all about Jesus. We're all about our Christian faith. But on Monday through Saturday at work or at play, we're another way. We follow the crowd when we're with the crowd and we follow Christ when we're with the church and they become mutually exclusive. This actually comes from a misinterpretation or a misapplication of Paul's words to be all things to all people. It's a kind of spiritual schizophrenia. My father used to say that you can't hoot with the owls at night and soar with the eagles in the morning. Well, that's really what we're trying to do when we have this split adaptation that you see on our screens. It kind of vacillates back and forth, but eventually it, it totally breaks down. Because this person is a citizen in two worlds and attempts to be at home in both of them. Like the rejectionist, they criticize or they check out from human culture altogether. And then also at other times they're fully conforming to and adapting to the world that they find themselves in. This person has so compromised their radical deference and their radical identification that they're of no value whatsoever. Association with the unbelieving world in such a situation is actually viewed as a necessary compromise. So now we've lost both our message and our audience. This is classic hypocrisy, wearing a mask depending on who or or where we are. We don't navigate, but rather vacillate between license and legalism. It is the single most damaging response to culture that a person could have. Our culture views this not as complicity, but as pure duplicity. Then the ideal that we're to strive for is to have this radical difference from the world, while at the same time having a radical or relevant identification with the world. That's what I'm going to call today critical participation that you see on the screen where we're trying to keep the balancing act between those two extremes. Here we desire to meaningfully and intentionally challenge and confront our culture rather than accommodate to it or be absorbed by it or simply to be antagonistic or apart from it. To maintain the integrity of the message and connection with those God has called us to reach in the power of the Holy Spirit, to be in the world but not of the world, to identify with non-believers without becoming identical to them, to live in culture but not have culture living in us, to be biblically faithful and culturally relevant. This was Christ's way. And that's why Paul said that we are to imitate Him as He imitates Christ. For in Philippians we're reminded though, Being in the very form of God, he thought equality with God, not something to be grasped, but emptied himself and became found in fashion as a man and took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, maintaining a radical difference from culture while at the same time having a relevant and radical identification with culture. That's our ideal. So how do we do it? How do we navigate this no man's land of modern contemporary culture? Let me give you two principles and three practices, maybe four practices to live by. To live with Christ-like courage and conviction over against cultural compromise and cowardice. The first 
there's a very clear principle. And that is, there is no impact without contrast. There is no impact, pardon me, without contrast. Os Guinness said it masterfully. Contrast is the mother of clarity. Any artist, any graphic designer, anybody in the visual arts, a photographer, know the critical importance of contrast to show tint and tone of light and shadow. It creates clarity. There is no difference if there is no difference. We must model a divine difference in distinctiveness. We must identify with our world without becoming identical to it. We must present a clear and compelling contrast in how we live and how we love from the rest of the people that unbelievers interact with on a daily basis. We must act, we must react, and we must interact differently. Why? Because we are different. We're radically different. If any man is in Christ, he's a brand new creature. The old has passed away and everything's become new. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. We praise God who has begotten us to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All things are new. We are creations of a brand new order and a brand new culture. Our reborn identity has different values. It has a different worldview. It has a different belief system by which we interpret life, its trials, its transitions, and its triumphs. At the moment we say, I believe, we are given a new identity, an identity rooted in Christ's person. We're given a new community rooted in God's people, and we're given a new destiny rooted in God's purposes and promises for our life. We are, at that moment, citizens of an alternative kingdom. We're now aliens, strangers, pilgrims, the Bible talks about on this earth. It's not our home anymore. Peter said it this way, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're called out, out of service to self, out of selfishness and stubbornness and sin, and called into devotion to Christ and him alone and his service for the balance of our lives. He says when we do that, we become fishers of men. He takes our ordinary, everyday, commonplace lives and makes them extraordinary. He infuses them not only with a new identity, but a fresh meaning and purpose. We now become empowered by the Holy Spirit to be His witnesses wherever we go and to make disciples in all the authority that's been given Him in heaven and on earth. We become ambassadors of God with all of His authority entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. It is as if God is making His appeal through us, 2 Corinthians 5. God has called us to demonstrate And to declare in our everyday lives, in all the roles and relationships of our life, that God is real and that God is relevant. That God has indeed revealed himself and he's redeemed us. And that this reality is the highest and best reality that a human can know. With the power to rescue and transform anyone, anywhere, at any time. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ of which we're not ashamed. True believers simply don't blend in well. 
because we were not reborn to blend in, but we were reborn to stand out. Christianity has been, is, and always will be a countercultural movement. Jesus was, the early church was, and the church in every age has been, and the church is today. So we're not to condemn the culture, and we're not to accommodate it. We're to confront it and challenge it appropriately. To portray a compelling contrast between inevitable darkness and despair. And to show them the eternal life, love, and light that a believer and follower of Jesus Christ knows and experiences on a daily basis. We must dare to be different, to live different, to love differently, because there is no impact without contrast. Follow Christ. Flee idolatry. A second principle to remember is not only is there no impact without contrast, there is no impact without contact. We've got to have contact. You cannot contact a world, uh, you cannot impact, that is, a, a world for Christ without contact. We must have intentional and, and, authentic, and authentic interaction with the world if we're going to, to impact it in some way. That's interesting to note because typically the pattern has been after we come to Christ, we're told to stay away from all those uh, people that you've been hanging around with because they're going to pull you down. So typically for a believer, two years after coming to faith, the average Christian has no significant relationships with non-believers. But in the Bible, separation never meant segregation. It certainly wasn't that way for Jesus. In the Bible, unbelievers are portrayed to us not as the enemy, but as victims of the enemy in need of God's rescue that we've experienced. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we're to be salt and light. Well, that's a pretty good illustration. If we're called to be salt and light, we need to understand that salt is not salt until it's out of its shaker, until it's out of its container and in contact with that for which it was meant. And light is only useful when it's in the presence of darkness. It's not meant to be hidden under a basket. I've always loved the fact that Jesus had the reputation of being a, quote, friend of sinners. You know, I wish if I were to have an epitaph on my tombstone, it would be great if that would be written on mine as well. That the religious community would criticize me as being a friend of sinners. That was his example, and that was his instruction to us to be and to do likewise. So let me give you several things that you can do to have contact so you can have impact, so that you can have contrast that leads to impact. First of all, build authentic relationships of integrity with unbelievers. Build authentic relationships of integrity with unbelievers. Now I realize it's always easier to build a wall than it is to build a bridge, but we're in the bridge building business. Our calling again is out of the world and into relationship and service to Christ, the revealer of God and the redeemer of mankind. It's interesting to note that most unbelievers are drawn first to Christians before they're drawn to Christ. So we've got to incarnate the gospel for them. The first gospel that most unbelievers will ever read is not the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's the gospel according to you and you. That's why in his second letter to the Corinthians, 
Paul said, We show that you're a letter from Christ delivered to us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Build authentic relationships of integrity with unbelievers. A second practice. How do you do it hard? Just find something that you're already passionate about that might be a common interest with people that are far from God and go do it with them. That can be a book club. That can be a quilting club. That can be a sports team. That can be an HOA meeting. That can be just coaching uh, your kid's soccer team. Find something you love to do and intend to do it regularly with unbelievers. So first, build an authentic relationship of integrity with unbelievers. Two, find something that you love to do and do it regularly with unbelievers. I wonder what would happen if maybe we did one less Christian intentional activity and chose instead on that same night or day to be with unbelievers on a regular basis, what impact we as a church could have. Build authentic relationships of integrity with unbelievers. Find something you love to do and do it with unbelievers. And then third, share a verbal witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, I understand more than most as an introvert that we're not all gifted evangelists. But we are all called and empowered to witness. Acts 1.8. To simply testify of what we've experienced. What we've seen and what we've experienced. And while it's important to share before them a, a compelling example. At some point, sooner or later you've got to say something. Romans 10. How will they believe in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear unless somebody tells them? And if you want to know how better to do that, Dr. James Saxon offers many classes here at Apostles to help you figure out and understand how best to engage people in intentional spiritual conversations. How thankful I am in my life that somebody built a relationship with me when I was an unbeliever and was willing to interrupt the trajectory of my life by simply speaking up. That they shared a verbal witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Build an authentic relationship of integrity with unbelievers. Find something you love to do and do it with unbelievers. At some point when the moment is right, when God leads you to do it with courage and convictions, share a simple witness to what God has done in your life. Simply recommend your faith to them. We recommend everything from uh, doctors to toothpaste. Why can't we feel as comfortable just recommending something that will change a person's entire eternity? And the last thing I would recommend to you is that in all things, let love be your guide. That's what Paul talks about in this passage. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And as I try to please everybody in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that many, many, that they may be saved. Five times 
in these three chapters that deal with cultural engagement, the principle of considerateness for the weaker or immature believer or unbeliever finds expression. When he wrote about this later to the church in Rome, in Rome, the, Romans the 14th chapter, the 19th verse, he said, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Augustine said it this way, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. We ask ourselves the simple questions. Will this glorify God? Will it build up the church? Will it move unbelievers towards the line of faith? Two principles. Four practices. There is no impact without contrast. There is no impact without contact. Choose intentionally to build relationships of integrity with unbelievers by finding points of commonality. When you discover in those points of commonality by doing things you love to do that they love to do as well, when you find where their lives are bad news, share the good news that you've experienced in your own life. And in all interactions, be different in the quality of your caring and the quality of your loving. So, knowing that God is calling each of us to stand courageously for our faith, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints and all the roles and relationships of our life in the context of modern culture, it begs the question, how's my impact? How's your impact? How are you doing in that regard? Is God leveraging the relationships in your life to make a difference in the world? Well, if there is no impact, then typically it's one of the two issues that has already been raised today. It's either one of devotion, which is an internal issue, which is a matter of contrast, or it's a matter of intention, external, which is a matter of contact. If my life is one of contact that's the issue, that I just don't have enough interaction with unbelievers, then I've got to make some decisions to end my Christian overcommitment and intentionally find meaningful ways to engage with unbelievers. Join a Kiwanis club. Join a Rotary club. Patronize the same businesses over and over again and learn the names of that checkout person at the grocery store, or at the dry cleaners, and build a relationship with them. Find ways to be incurably curious about their lives. Invest in them. How's your contact? Get into intentional relationships with unbelievers to increase your impact. Maybe your issue is one of contrast. Most of us don't want to share the good news when we know our life is bad news, so maybe it's the fact that we just know that God has not been given full reign in our life and we're not living an undiluted existence before Him. Contrast or is it contact? I have to confess to you that I was appalled and ashamed and embarrassed that at the last Life Imprint dinner here at Apostles that I could not think of a single unbeliever that I had built a strong enough relationship with that I could invite them to that dinner. I had been here almost seven months and I had not gotten intentional enough about engaging with unbelievers at a fitness club or wherever it happens to be that I didn't have a single person that I could invite to Life in Print dinner. That can't happen again. 
And I pray God will make me accountable to that. What is your contact? What is your contrast? If you're here today and you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit that's saying, I'm living a deluded life, I'm living a disassociated life, then this is an opportunity for you simply to say to God, from this point forward, I'm all in. To being the person you called me to be, to letting the Holy Spirit recreate me from the inside out, to duplicate the character of conduct of Christ in me, but at the same time, I'm going to become intentional in a way that I've never been so before to engage the lives of people that are far from God around me so that I can be the agent of your change in their life. Let's pray. God, I pray today that there'll be spiritual decisions made in this room, that even as I make a commitment to be intentional about spending time outside of the walls of the church or my office building to be in regular contact with non-believers, to go deep with them, to build an authentic relationship of integrity built on love and on commonality, that you will use me in that sphere of influence to be your agent of reconciliation. I pray, God, that each of us would make that same decision. And God, I know that there is that reticence to share our lives with others when we know that we're not living appropriately. If there's anyone in this room tonight, today, that realizes that they've not let you have full reign, that they've elevated other things to equal status or even above you in passion or pursuit, that this would be an opportunity to right-size their lives, to put you back in control, and put everything assumed under your lordship. God, help us to do that, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.